You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by the Westwood One Podcast Network. And this is your respite from groupthink, from distractions, from nonsense that you hear on other media because we actually focus on the discernible policy outcomes that matter to our republic. And what greater and more foundational policy than the vote, the franchise, the integrity of the electorate itself? You know, Teddy Roosevelt once said, there is no enemy of free government more dangerous and unso insidious as the corruption of the electorate. The last thing I wanted to do today was to rehash the elections. You know, I like to talk about policy headed forward. We already started in our marathon show in middle of election night, which by the way, I still haven't recovered from. I'm tired as anything. I I stood up that entire night, didn't go to sleep until early afternoon. I took a three hour nap. And uh, anyway, we, we started this discussion of how the election wasn't, it was bad in some ways, but in other ways, there's a lot of lemonade we can make from those lemons and turn around if we had a conservative party focused, focusing Trump on the right issues, focusing McConnell on the right strategies. I want to get to a lot of that. But for now, I have to revisit the election because it tur- turns out the election is still going on. Um, you know, we have a lot of early voting these days, endless 30 days, 40 days sometimes. It seems like we have late voting now. I've noticed throughout my entire life of watching elections, and since I've been doing this professionally, I'm literally hitting the refresh button on every house race to watch its progress throughout the night. So I could report it as our senior writer at Conservative Review. We have our live blog or live coverage of it. And one thing I notice is that every single time, even if the Republican is leading uniformly the entire night, either... In some cases, in the last few percentage reporting, it closes and flips the other way. So we saw that with Montana. Since we spoke last, it looks like we lost Montana. And, you know, that happened in the last few points. It was held over to the next day. They say there was a mistake originally reported. Look, I, I only say that with a tinge of sarcasm that somehow that always works in one direction every single time. But, you know, Matt Rosendale, the Republican, conceded. Okay. But since then, we've seen several things. There's about five House races that seem to have flipped, where races where the Republican was leading the whole not, the whole night, the race was called for them with 100% reporting. The next day, it's flipped. There's a race in New Jersey. There's a race in New Mexico, too, the south of uh, New Mexico, where it appears like we lost. That's very painful because that was a pretty good Republican there. Um, and several California races. I noticed this in 2010. I noticed this in 2014. Each time we lose about five to seven races the next day. Um, In 2010, we won almost 70 seats that night, or it appeared like we won, and it got whittled down to 63. And then the big news is, you know, Arizona is still not called. Um, Still stuff going on there. And the big prize of the night, kind of mitigating some of the loss, was Florida. 
where despite it being a pretty bad year, where in a year that's going to be bad, you're going to lose a 50-50 state like Florida, um, despite all the shenanigans, the early voting, the, all the Democrats get what they want, uh, the candidates worked very hard. Rick Scott and and Ron DeSantis were de- declared victors for the Senate and gubernatorial races, respectively. Now that appears to be over with. It appears like they found more votes in Broward County. They're still counting now. And again, the gap only narrows in one direction and only flips in one direction, and that is towards the Democrats. In my entire lifetime, I have never seen a single race that was called one way the election night, or at least you know appeared to be one way, and then went towards the Republicans. So with me today to kind of sift through some of this mess and also discuss more of the looming long-term problems that we know with voter fraud, with non-citizens voting, is Logan Churchwell. He's the communications and research director for the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Um, he and his colleagues there spend their their time fighting voter fraud and promoting 21st century ways to secure our vote because that you know there's nothing more important than that we all want to know we have a fair election um when i had logan on in july and we're going to link to that show in our show notes here so some of you who are new listeners and haven't heard it get a chance to hear it uh i i got some of the best feedback from that ever it was a great briefing on overall what happens with our elections. So it is an honor to bring back a second time to the conservative conscience, Logan Churchwell. Hey, how are you doing, Logan? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me back. No, really enjoyed it last time. And um, you you can hear it in my voice. I, I, I really, I'm not the type of guy that wants to believe that behind every uh, election office, there's a Democrat there manufacturing ballots, cheating. Um, you know, it, it's a very painful thought. You don't want to think you, know, you want to know that when you lose, you lose fair and square, and that you could live to fight another day and win fairly and properly, and that all the votes will be counted pursuant to law. What really scares me, both in terms of the long-term problems and then specifically last, you know, this election, I think all sides would agree that I don't have a real data showing this, but I think anecdotally it appears to be true that more than ever, we seem to have more close elections than ever. Um, we, we're a very sharply divided country, um, possibly more so since since any time since the 1860s. Um, and certainly you see it in county, state-level races, certainly in primaries. Uh, my home state of Baltimore County, county of Baltimore County, a million residents the Democrat primary, which really determines who ultimately wins the county executive office, it came down to something like 12 votes. Um, but you see it certainly in a lot of House races. I don't have the numbers, but easily easily a dozen or razor-thin margins, two or three dozen within a point or two. And then even massive statewide elections in massive states like Florida coming down to within a half a per- percentage point. So – if even a small amount of fraud is going on, that's going to determine the direction of our republic. Could you just speak broadly as to what we're seeing, why you think all these races move in one direction at the end? Well, fraud is always going to exist. Um, 
until every state passes every kind of law that public interest legal foundation would like to be passed that we know of right now and and envision in the future, fraud's going to happen. But as we become more polarized, you are seeing the gulf in understanding between the Democratic Party and their constellation of groups and the Republican Party and theirs and really understanding how elections work. Because one of the reasons why, like anecdotally, and we see the same thing, how whenever a race gets close and they start hunting and pecking over every single little ballot left, that the gap always closes in favor of Democrats, usually good rule of thumb. The reason that happens is because it's the Democrats on the ground who are pushing for that to happen. And they're not necessarily doing anything illegal. The fact is they just understand how to make the system spit out the result they want because usually they're the ones showing up. The Republican Party for years is not very complimentary to Democrats. For years, the Republican Party has thought and acted as if, okay, we have the best arguments um, as Republicans. So as long as we can get those arguments enough airtime and the folks at home look at their wallet, they look at their 401k, they look at all these other economic indicators, we're going to be okay. The Democratic Party, to their credit and to their advantage, have learned we don't have to run on an issue. We can run on the election itself. And that's where you see arguments like voter suppression pop up and become very prominent in how candidates can make their whole platform out of voter suppression and election issues and not really want to talk about the economy. And yet they do well in places like Georgia. Not well enough, apparently. But the Democratic Party understands to the most minute detail, even counting that last absentee ballot that shows up late, that last provisional ballot that is cured in time to become counted as a regular ballot. They can do that, especially in states like Florida, um, and close that gap because the real goal is, especially in Florida, and I'm sure we'll talk about this some more in a bit, if we can just close the gap as Democrats, we can trigger different kinds of recounts with different kinds of rules, eventually getting to the best thing of all, which is a hand recount where vote totals are going to change right and left. And can, can, you explain, can you just explain that more to our listeners? What does it mean, the count changing? I mean, a vote's a vote. You know, your average person would say, well, just, just count the votes. I mean, uh, are you 100% done? Well, you said you're 100% done. Well, okay. And then it turns out Ron DeSantis won the governor's race by, you know, you know about a percentage point or whatever. And, you know, what, what changes? How does it change? All right. Well, let, let's take a look at the Florida governor's race and let's pop over to Broward County just Fort Lauderdale. Um, it is the second largest county in the state. Uh, you have a very large African-American voting population there. Um, and you have a county elections office that is a magnet for all kinds of troublemaking, uh, getting in trouble right and left for destroying ballots before they were set to destroy them according to the law in terms of just record retention and so on. So they have a problem with data appearing and disappearing. And they've gotten in trouble with the state of Florida, with federal courts, you name it. Any venue, they've had a problem. So you're, you have that going into 2018. And it happened most recently in the 2016 Democratic primary uh, for Debbie Wasserman Schultz's race. Mm. So we have a record of problems in Broward. The vote total in terms of a percentage between uh, Gillum and DeSantis is sitting just north of half of a percent difference between winner and loser. That half of a percent is an important boundary 
Because if you go beneath that one half of 1%, Florida state law says mandatory recount. We're going to retabulate. We're not going to bust all the ballots out by hand and look at them and look at Chad and all that, but we're going to run them through the machine again. And the reason that numbers change, you can, uh, like you just said, well, we counted it 100% were accounted for. Here's the numbers. The reason the numbers can change the second time you run those ballots through is because the counting machines themselves can fail. And right now in Broward County, they are counting about 22,000 votes. And there's also a concern uh, that just as many of those 22,000 votes looks like about 24,000, actually 24,000 ballots cast in Broward County voted for, for governor, but they skipped the Senate race, which was the second slot on the ballot. And then they started casting ballots all the way down the ballot. So for some reason you have, so yeah. So in Broward County, you have 24,000 ballots where every selection, every race is participated in on the part of the voter, but the U S Senate race. And so the theory is, so there's two theories. One is the ballot was confusing, which is very good. If someone wants to really try and force a recount, um, I'm not, I'm not getting this. You're, you're saying, but, but how, how does that happen in one County and not the other counties? Here's, here's how it happens. Theory two is the counting machine that was fed through the 10 page in Broward County that the ballot, these are printed, these are paper ballots. They're about legal size paper printed back and uh, forward and backside, 10 pages, five pages, double-sided run those through the system. And the second theory is the reader was skipping the Senate race whenever it was passing the paper through. And that happened 24,000 times. Uh, so therefore we need to go, put human eyeballs on those 24,000 ballots and see if they actually skipped over. Uh, because, and because someone actually did vote them, the, but the machine was digitally blind to them or something. Uh, so we need a recount. That's the other democratic argument. Now, so, so we understand wow, okay. that this is split Republican and Democrat about 50, 50. So this, it really doesn't mean much to say, well, maybe Democrats were confused, they were disadvantaged, et cetera, because just as many Republicans were affected. But all this to say, you have 24,000 ballots in Broward County that have already been counted, but the local Democrats want to take another look at them because they think the machine did not process them correctly, and they therefore need human eyes. And guess what? The Republican Party they're not really on the ground on this. Whereas the Democrats have Mark Elias, who is the election lawyer for the democratic party. Uh-huh. They, when Hillary Clinton has a problem, Mark Elias gets the call. He is the guy that is flush with priorities, USA super PAC money. He takes Soros money. Uh, he is the, the rock star election lawyer for the democratic party. And he's on the ground right now. And there isn't a counterweight there for him. The Republicans are just saying, call the election. It's done. We're above half a percent. It's over. Let's all concede. Let's all declare victory. Let's go home. Uh, Whereas the Democrats have the architecture on the ground to be able to nitpick every single ballot and try and slow the matter down, buy more time, 
and let those votes change. Because once these 24,000 ballots are finally handled in Broward, maybe, just maybe, Gillum can close beneath that half a percentage threshold and score a statewide mandatory recount. And if that happens, and what if, what if, what happened in Broward happened in Miami, happened in Pinellas, happened in Orange, other counties where Democrats are pretty strong. What if more of those discoveries happen and that difference between half a percent goes under a quarter of 1%? When that happens, Florida law says it's hand recount time. Wow. That's what the Democrats are going for. They understand the law. It's not very complicated, but they also understand how to marshal forces to create the best possible environment for that whole scenario to play out. And that is why Gillum, about 12 hours ago on his Twitter account, made an an interesting comment saying, I can't wait for the votes to be counted, even though he already gave a concession speech on Tuesday night. But now he's He's rubbing his hands together and hoping for more votes to swing his way. And let's have a Florida 2000 do-over again, U.S. Senate edition. So Republicans don't understand how to play this game. Democrats do. They learned these lessons in 2000, and they're not going back. And again, what's so painful is like, you know, you could say to yourself, look, you know, that's dirty Democrat work. We we can't do this. We don't do this. You know, you you could see the race or two here or there. But – the, the, I mean, again, we're seeing just socially, politically, we're headed for um, a long-term trend of a lot of very close races. And you can't Absolutely. afford, you know, when you're Republicans, when you're dealing with, you know, the problems they have demographically, the, you know, it's it's hard to win. It's hard with the media. It's hard. Um, Democrats have every pressure point imaginable. Uh, it's a miracle to win elections, and you know you can't afford to lose on on more factors. So, gosh, I mean that's that's really unsettling. And I guess we'll watch that to, to zoom back a little bit farther than Florida. Although I think you could apply it to Florida too. So, so this is cases where they find they find that ballots they don't like, or you know they want to question things. But overall, why is it that? When you have, I guess you'd say the post game show, you know, the the late voting almost, you know, the after a hundred percent reporting. Could you talk about just generally the practice of election officials with when they count absentee ballots, when they then count provisional ballots, what exactly provisional ballots are, and why again, if my, unless my memory fails me, it seems like this election and every other one, but very pronounced over the last twenty four hours. The margin only, only, only moves in the Democrats' favor. Sure. Um, well, the first rule of thumb to know is that there is not a rule of thumb for how and when absentee ballots are counted looking across all the states. In some states, as soon as the polls close, the absentee ballots are all immediately run through, and they're the first ones that show reports on cable news. And people get excited. They start seeing the numbers move. In other places... Uh, it goes, it's the last thing to be done. Uh, so that that's always going to move around depending on which state you're looking at, uh, when, when and where the absentee ballots are counted, even, even how they're counted. What, what is the actual process for taking the, the, the voted ballot out of the mailbox and eventually getting it into the vote counting machine? 
every single step is planned out differently in every single state and how uh, ballots end up getting counted and run through that machine or somewhere along the way, the election official says, I don't like something on this. I think this is fraud uh, or something is missing here. Something is wrong and it gets cast aside. So wait, 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 what do you mean happens, something is missing, meaning on, like on the ballot or on his registration? Like on the envelope that has the ballot inside it. If a signature is missing from the voter saying, I swear and affirm this is my ballot, uh, no funny business here. You can count this as normal. Everything's going to be fine. If information on that envelope is missing, if there's contradictory information, if the signature is missing, if the signature looks forged, because in some states, like in Texas, for example, there is a room of people that just look at absentee ballot envelopes, not the ballot. They just look at the envelope and look at that signature. Picture on that envelope looks like we have on, what we have on file according to their voter registration form or the last piece of mail that we got from them. Or they say, uh, that signature doesn't look right. Let's put it over here in the questionable pile. Now, that pile of votes, of, of mail votes, of absentee ballot votes, I should say, will grow for a variety of reasons. And here again, it's that gulf of understanding between Republicans and Democrats. Democrats know how to go to that questionable box of votes, sift through them, and find a way to get them counted under the law. Republicans, and eh, not so much. So that's another reason why it seems like you won on Tuesday, but you're going to start losing on Thursday. It's because the Democratic Party knows how to swim through that ballot, uh, that list of ballots that was set aside for one reason or another and get them into the counted column. Now, the same thing happens with provisional ballots. Provisional ballots are federally required to be offered to anyone for any reason, it, it, assuming that something is apparently wrong and they cannot cast a regular ballot right there on the spot uh, on election day. So someone at the wrong polling place and, and they refuse to relocate to where they're supposed to go. Someone that does not have proper ID. Uh, if someone shows up and the poll worker says, I know Mary Jane Smith at 123 Main Street, you aren't her you still can't turn them away empty-handed. You have to give them a provisional ballot. Uh, cases like that, where something is apparently wrong and there is good reason to not let them cast a regular ballot at the time, they get a provisional ballot. And every state has different rules on how to take that box of provisional ballots and eventually count them as regular ones. And it requires voters to do certain things to cure whatever discrepancy or problem mm -hmm. there is. So like, for example, on voter ID, uh, you have X amount of days, depending on the state. It's usually about a week plus to say, you know what? I, I went to the poll. I forgot my driver's license. Never mind the fact that I drove here. Oops. Um, but here it is. So let my ballot count normally. What happens then is your ballot, quote unquote, blends uh, with the regular ballot pool uh. and it counts. That's how, in a nutshell, that's how provisionals work. And all of this, again, to say the Republican Party just does not have the architecture to wait for that questionable batch of ballots um, to eventually be counted. Because 
in in a layman's mind, whenever you hear about ballots being counted two, three days later, they think, well, did they just find a box under someone's desk? Is this just the, the dead voters that we're just going to pull out in case of emergency? I know that's happened in history, but usually whenever you hear about a new crop of ballots, sure. this is what it was. They always had them. But, but now you have someone stomping on the gas pedal to get them counted exactly according to the law. And the Republicans do not know how to do that. Uh, they, they do not have architecture to where they can parachute someone in to whatever county and say, all right, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to start uh, counting these questionable votes over here. Democrats have invested in that. But, they but, have in years. But my qu- my question, Logan, for you, just the the follow up to that is so so I, you, I think you explained very well the process, the the absentee ballots and why they'd be more you know prone to have problems on them than the provisional ballots, um, and they exist, and obviously they're not going to come into play if the margin of victory for the one who's ahead is is too much. Anyway, it's in the close races, but there's a lot of close races. Then the next question is, I'm, I'm looking at the the Florida GOP tweeted out like an hour ago. Hey, you know, you have until later today to check with your the supervisor of the election office to make sure your provisional ballot was counted. If you you know, uh, filed a provisional ballot, make sure it's counted. So my question is, you're saying Democrats are better at playing it. Republicans are supposedly calling for now in Florida. But why is it that? Again, and, and again, I'm not trying to even be partisan here. It's just I, I it's a basic observation. Every single race last night and usually other elections closed in one direction. How could it be that the type of people that would forget their driver's licenses or the type of people that let's say um, moved locations and their, maybe their driver's license reflects that, but then the records of the County reflect their old address. So they, I guess in that case, uh, file a provisional ballot, I haven't seen any political scientific studies that say Democrats are more clumsy than Republicans are, if you get what I'm suggesting here. Well, there is a plethora of Democratic experts who will testify and swear up and down in court to say, yeah, our report, our uh, voters, maybe not the brightest bunch. And you got to be kidding me. And even oh, oh, remember a couple of years ago. I think it might have been in 2016, but or maybe it was 2014. But President Obama at the time, so he's still president, gave a rally and said, "You got to get Brother Pookie off the couch and get him to go vote." Google the name Obama, cousin Pookie. You will find him barking that line at a rally to a huge applause and guffaw. Cousin Pookie is the uh, the concept of the dumb Democratic voter that the Democratic Party says exists and they feel they it's necessary to have an army of people to make sure Cousin Pookie gets to the ballot box and whatever mistake he makes while he is there, some nice person will come in behind him and clean it up. Uh, so yes, uh, the Democratic Party is very proud of this idea that they just have some not-so-bright voters, uh, but we got to take care of them all the same. And maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but the reality is the, the Democratic Party has built that system up just in case. The Republican Party, like you just mentioned, is firing off tweets. The Democratic Party <laughs> knows your name. They know where you live. They know you had a problem. And here is this nice uh, third-year law student from whatever university 
who's going to show up at your door and they're going to walk you to the election office and we're going to get you taken care of. That is the level of architecture the Democratic Party has. The Republican Party is buying radio ads and carpet bombing (laughs) college football game uh, commercial breaks. (laughs) But but just statistically, that's nuts. I mean – I'm just saying every – I could say with certitude, you know, I, I would have to recall other elections, but I could say with certitude that, that this election, this election, every single race that has you know, changed directions, it changed in, in the direction of the Democrat even when uniformly the Republican was up the entire night from – 20% reporting to 50 to 80 to 90, and then even in the cases where it was 100%, they all changed in one direction. I, I, I just yeah. – I can't get over that. And the guiding logic to follow here, the longer you count and recount, the more the count changes back and forth. And the more you agitate for said recount, the better advantage you're going to have. And, and, uh, because but the Logan – Rewind. I, 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 I understand what you're saying. I could understand how they're more aggressive about getting a count. I get it. But once you then go count the the batch of provisionals, why would they be overwhelmingly – because keep in mind you're closing a, a margin. I mean you know math. So it, it's usually – it has to be a lot more than you know, 55, 45. It's, it's going to be a lot in their favor. And it's only from the areas. Like right now, I'm looking at Georgia. So Georgia is another one I, I didn't mention at the top of the show, but for our audience, so it appeared that Kemp, the Republican Brian Kemp, won the governorship, um, but Stacey Abrams is didn't concede. And now they talk about provisional ballots, and the top areas of provisional ballots are from Fulton, DeKalb, and Gwinnett, which are you know the Atlanta well, metro. Yeah. So here's. And this is a bit of a cynical way of looking at it. There will be political activists on the ground. There will be campaign operatives that will say that we've seen the other guy push people into the polling place to, to know that they were going to cast a provisional ballot, that they were not in the right place. They didn't care. They needed to get provisional ballots on the record because the more provisionals that you have, you can then go back and once again play that old tactic of making the election about the election and not about the issue <laughs> and say, look, DeKalb County racists, uh, you've got a whole bunch of provisional ballots. You've got a voter ID law. You have this thing called the exact match law, which says that all the information has to match perfectly or there's a couple of hoops that the voter has to jump through to, to get through the system. You have all these things that we believe are racist on the face. And here you are with an outsized number of provisional ballots. Uh, We need to get these things counted. And essentially, they ratchet up political pressure to the point that the local clerk who does not want their name mentioned on CNN because they have 10 other jobs that they do in the county, like maybe organizing the busing system, who knows? They say, you know what? Let them vote. Let's pass them through. So in a cynical sense, you could say, that a strategy of pushing provisional ballots in for the purpose of ratcheting up pressure on the other side uh, just to let them vote, that happens. 
And I've heard it from the mouths of election officials themselves that they will say to that person whose job it is to open that mail ballot and look at that signature or take a look at that provisional ballot, the phrase you will always hear is err on the side of the voter. And if there's any reason to think that maybe that voter should be casting that ballot and perhaps it's not fraud, let them go, let them run through. And in a cynical sense, that's been told to me from election officials, it's been told to me from political candidates, maybe they're both bitter, uh, but people that have direct experience in that have relayed that to Public Interest Legal Foundation, and that is an additional way of looking at it. So you're, you're essentially saying the only logical reason for what we see is that in a close race, after election night, they'll count the provisional ballots, and because of push and pull factors, um, they skew towards the Democrats. Not necessarily that organically it would, but that you know they'll try to gum up the works by automatically put. Meaning, whereas if you're just a regular person, not there's no grassroots organization. You're just Joe Joe Blow trying to vote, and you're like, yeah, I don't got, I don't have my stuff together. You know, I I didn't change my uh, address properly. I didn't do whatever. So he just won't vote. But with the organizations out, which are only on the left, I mean, that much we do know. Um, they'll say, no, 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 go in there, vote anyway, because you automatically at least have to get a provisional ballot. And then once the race is closed, they'll say, hey, look, you know, what if the provisional ballots are enough to change the outcome? They start counting it. And then that's how Democrats, you know, are, are more or less able to win here. I guess my question to you then, policy wise, we've talked a lot together, and I, I know I've written a lot, and conservatives have raised the alarm a lot. They need for photo ID, the need for, um, you know, obviously with the non-citizens voting for proof of citizenship, based on what you're telling me, don't we need some sort of reform at a federal level for the provisional ballot law that we do, you do want a concept of provisional ballots, but if they could just, if there's no threshold, if they could just gum up the works and force a provisional ballot, I mean, what's to stop them from totally just, you know, I mean, even having people vote twice. Well, and this is more of a state question than a federal one. The federal question has essentially been answered, which says, if you need a provisional ballot for whatever reason, you get one. Uh, the state question is more about what are the rules for handling these things? Um, so, so that's still left to the state. Tr- yes, very much so. And that's where we want it. I mean, the sure. less that we have Capitol Hill, Congress, Messing around with election law, the all the happier we're going to be in the long run, because you really you just want bare minimum protections, uh, which bare minimum isn't the best way to put it. But you just want federal protections governing the bad issues like citizenship eligibility, like um, barring voter intimidation, uh, barring discrimination, those big issues. Uh, but when it comes to the granular issues, the the basic chain of custody of information of, of election materials, uh, the the rules about polling places, the, the tiny details that a, a million million of them come together and make your trip to the polling place all the easier, and you had no idea what was going on behind it. Yes, you want that done 
at the state and local level. And that includes provisional ballots, uh, because with Washington, you're going to get one size fits all solutions, which are trouble, especially in our modern era, because all you have to do is look at one of the most recent pieces of federal election law, the National Voter Registration Act. Yep, motor and we've voter. talked about this before. Motor voter was designed in the 1980s and it was designed to run on 1980s technology. And the best way to co- communicate with a voter back then was through the mail. Now I get my, uh, my fake ballot example, uh, my, my sample ballot through email. I get all of my communication through email and text message from my local government official. Uh, the mail is the last thing that I get something from. So whenever that happens, the, uh, whenever the federal government steps in and writes a law when it comes to elections, technology around it freezes and the enforcement around it freezes as well. And that's why states like Ohio had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court to get clearance on how they were cleaning up their voter rolls because otherwise they would have had to pretend that it was 1988 still. And although people were leaving Ohio and moving to Texas and California and elsewhere, uh, they still had to be maintaining the roles like it was the 20th century. Uh, and it was a very slow process and it led to a dirty system. That's not an issue anymore. Uh, there are these things, there's these thing called email now where a clerk can call a clerk or we can communicate with a clerk in another state and say, Hey, did this guy move to your jurisdiction? Yes, he did. Here's the proof. Okay, great. I'll take him off my list. He's all yours now. That did not exist in the eighties. Uh, and that's, that's what happens when the federal government steps in because the state governments are far more limber in, in a relative sense. And those local governments as well to keeping up with the times and the electorate that they're charged with servicing keep the feds out of this, whether it's provisional, I don't care what. If sure. anything, we need to reform the laws that we have now. Let's not go create some new ones. And let's especially not let the federal government say, you know what, the Russians are coming. Uh, we need more <laughs> federal rules and systems to protect these state voter registration systems from the hackers that never came in 2018. The reason was because there were 50 different systems you would have had to hack 50 different kinds of systems to, to make a dent. And they never came anyway, as far as we can tell at this time. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So leave it alone. Stay out of but, Washington. But, but on a state level, I mean, what I'm saying is on a state level, we should deal with some of the threshold issues for pr- provisional ballots, if this is what they're sure. going to do. I mean, really, one of the best things, and let's hop back to Broward for a minute, best thing that can happen is for the state of Florida uh, and any other state that has a system like it to uh, invest in upgrades to their, their counting system. You don't need a whole army of new IT guys. We don't even necessarily change the law, but let's buy some new counters. Let's buy a, a counting machine that reads the whole ballot and doesn't skip various races at random 10, 20,000 times over. How about that? Uh, so yeah, that's why I say you, it, it, these things make or break one way or the other on the most granular issues. And it's not necessarily raises to the point of, we got to change the law. No, it's, we need to buy a new counting machine. We need a new voting machine. Uh, we might need to hire more people to run these systems. Let's not rely on high school kids that need co- a community service credits for their civics class. If those exist still, I don't know. Um, 
but let's not farm out the the labor of running our elections on the local level to people that are going to do it for minimum wage. So let's, what you're saying is invest. another interesting factor here. So we got one answer to our big question. You know, why do elections always flip at the end or over time to Democrats? So, you know, they're going to be counting the provisional ballots because provisional ballots are not they're they're not just organic. They're they're um organized. So it's one side doing the organizing. They're going to be more Democrat. By definition, they're going to be in more Democrat areas, which is why you see them more in any given state, the big metro areas as opposed to the rural areas. But are you saying now another factor that um, – and, and I know I think I heard your, your boss, uh, Jay Christian Adams, say this before, that just in general, the reason why it seems like it's slower, there's more issues, it's always, always, always in the big Democrat areas is just that – that there's more incompetence in those offices than in the rural offices. I mean, is that, is that it? Yes. Yeah. And you can point yet again, right back at Broward County, because here <laughs> you have a County office who's a County election officer, supervisor of elections. Her name is Brenda Snipes, the current uh, lady in charge there. Her predecessor was removed from office by, I believe former governor Jeb Bush at the time uh, for rank incompetence. And in, in Florida, the governor has the unique power, even though these are elected officials on the county, on a countywide race, these, these election officials, uh, these supervisors, the governor can fire you uh, if they have good cause. Uh, malfeasance is uh, one of the key uh, terms that is used in the statute. So if you have a, an election official that keeps getting in trouble with the state, that makes records disappear whether they're subject to a lawsuit or not, and essentially grinds the case to a halt that the court can't act as a fact finder because the facts all got shredded, literally, um, then yes, you can have someone get in trouble there. Also, it, it is very much a fair statement to make that when you... And, and I don't even necessarily think this is a Democrat issue. If you have an area that is one party controlled not only from the electorate but people just working in the local governments you do see sloppiness creep in and it manifests in, in various ways and the election office is a very front-facing way in which you can see it i mean i've personally seen it in broward county uh, with some work that public interest legal has done i've seen it in newark new jersey uh in multiple cases where there's no such thing as a republic but on the other, on the same token, I've seen the same thing happen in Nebraska and towns and counties you've never heard of that are as red as can be, um, not a Democrat to be seen. And the voter rolls are even more of a mess by proportion than you would see in like Dallas, Texas, where it's mm. very much Democratic controlled. So when you have one party control really uh, up and down, then you can see that complacency kick in. You can see that laziness kick in um, and, and problems will surface. Uh, and yes, you can, you can find it on both sides of the aisle, on the coast and in the heartland. Uh, and that's just something we need to, to be aware of as, as an electorate. So, you know, it's, we, need, we need officials. We need local officials that are on their toes at all times. And the best way to do that is to watch them do their work. That, that's what public interest legal does in a variety of ways. And that's what I encourage all of your listeners to do the same, is to show an interest in how your, ele your local election office works. 
show up and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to volunteer. I'm retired. Uh, whatever your situation is, uh, call them up and say, look, if you ever need a body that you need to throw on something, uh, I'm willing and able. Uh, here's my education. Here are my qualifications. I think I can help you out. They may never take you up on it, but the fact that you're willing to show up and that you're paying attention has an effect on that office and it might make changes uh, that you may never see communicated back to you, but you have a very good shot at seeing that customer service, which is what elections are um, in this sense. That's what this is all about. Yeah, I mean, uh, people need to get involved, and that—that—that's the point today. Just to raise awareness, I—I I really wanted to move on from this, but I realize you can't—you can't move on from this because it's got to be fair, pursuant to law, both from the fraud standpoint, from the incompetence standpoint, um, because most of our, you know, most contentious elections are going to be that close. They are going to be very close. This is going to be a long-term trend and it's got to be right. Um, you know, if you're on the few hundred vote side of either the winner or the loser, we got to make sure this is real stuff. Gosh, there's so many angles to this. And I'm trying to cover some of the ones we didn't discuss, um, you know, when, when you were on an, uh, over the summer, but there's just two more issues. One is with the absentee ballot. So, um, you know, when I, when I was, a kid first studying political science and trends, it was always very clear. It was known that, you know, uh, absentee ballots, generally speaking, skewed towards Republicans. It was businessmen who traveled that would um, use absentee ballots. Uh, what, what we're seeing in California is Republicans are going to lose at least three seats that they seem to have won electionized. So they, there they clearly count the absentee ballots last. And, you know, they're, all, all the kind of, um, you know, top political science pundits uh, on the right and the left were saying, hey, you got to factor in a lot of these races the Democrats are going to wind up winning because of absentee ballots. And I was thinking to myself, well, I understand California is very Democrat, but by definition, the districts, the House districts we're discussing here are the 50-50 ones actually traditionally, you know, lean Republican and you know why would the absentee ballots be two to one Democrat and flip the margins? What's what's going on there? I'm glad you asked that because this isn't a fraud question, and it's not even really so much a partisan question in terms of strategy. This is a cultural question, mm. and here I am, a millennial, going to bash on millennials for a moment. Allow me, <laughs> millennial voters are seeing their ballots get longer and longer with more constitutional amendments, with more races that they never knew even existed. Um, especially when they get that sample ballot, usually sent to them via email, if they're really plugged in like I am, and say, you know what? In Florida, my ballot's eight pages long. It's printed in size 10 font, and it's double-sided on legal paper. I'm not going to drag my three-year-old kid to the polling place so I can read, again, some of these constitutional amendments that really are kind of confusingly worded. So I'm going to vote in the mail, take my time uh, and do it that way and just save the headache. This, this is what you're going to be seeing happening is that a shift absentee balloting is going to get more popular and it's going to get more popular among the most valuable demographic of all the 18 to 35 demo that are young professionals with young families uh, that live in the suburbs 
and really just don't want to multitask voting. And also, they don't pay attention to down ballot races, but they still want to make an informed decision as best as they can. Uh, and they don't want to just skip around and, and vote straight ticket or just go with the name that sounds the most trustworthy. They're going to do their homework. So what do they do? That's what I did. Uh, I took my ballot in the mail. I took it home. There were about 20 races for school board people I'd never heard of, uh, judges, etc. I got my ballot out, pulled up Google, started Googling names, and started looking at endorsements. Who likes who? And it's probably the most informed ballot I've ever filled out. And that's becoming increasingly uh, important to millennials. And in fact, the Democratic Party and to some extent the Republican Party has realized, you know what, let's tap into that. And let's text millennials to say, you know what, that's an option. You can vote by mail. We'll get you an I voted sticker that you can blast on Facebook later. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but if it's easier for you to vote by mail, uh, it's less stressful. You'll have less anxiety, which everyone seems to have these days. Anxiety, what a fad. Um, fine. We'll text you. Here are the details. Follow this link to get your ballot ordered. And then after a period of time has passed, we're going to send messages a day to make sure you mailed the thing back uh, because that happened to me also. It's happening in a lot of states. You're seeing the Republicans and Democrats moving away so more from online ads and tele uh, broadcast television buys, and they're getting into mobile communication. Uh, and you're going to see absentee balloting being pushed heavily in the elections to come, barring the next big technological breakthrough in this to say, you know what, here's the value of casting a ballot by mail. We can communicate about it by text. It's not just some algorithm on the other side talking to you. It's another person texting you right back. And if you have any questions, and I've done this um, for some reason, uh, even though after I cast a ballot, I kept getting text messages, and I would see how human the other side was over there and say, you know what, I'm having a problem. I don't know where to turn this in. What do I do? Uh, here's where I live. And I got back some very personalized responses. So all of that to say, places like California, where you already have a strong Democratic advantage, uh, but you have a young vote that's starting to actually tap into the system and, and participate and make a dent, they're going to do it through the mail mm. because it's easier. It, it, it really just is. I mean, they do the idea of going and waiting in line polling place and being in that community rec center that probably smells bad, but it's all part of the show. <laughs> it's all part of the experience as a community. It's lost on them. But they have so They'll many days of early mail. voting now. I mean, why do you need both? Because you don't have to put pants on this way. Gosh, so have this without the early voting, man. But but anyway, I mean, there. so, so that you explain that very well. That's That's a very interesting take, and I haven't really heard that before. If you could explain the other side, the little bit more insidious side that sometimes does cross the legal line, other times it doesn't, and some states regulate, some don't, on um, the ballot harvesting that's more for – probably more for elderly sure. people where, again, what you're explaining to me is you know, back in the day, it was extenuating circumstances. Some states actually only allowed you to vote absentee with extenuating circumstances. Now it's being done – as the preferred method up front, you're saying with younger people, what happens with the ballot harvesting, which again would explain why Democrats have the lion's share of these votes? Yeah, so this is, um, and there are some pretty high profile cases 
uh, let's hop over to Texas, shall we? In uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area, the Texas Attorney General just indicted what he called a quote-unquote voter fraud ring. It's pretty strong language. But essentially what happened was you had these four ladies, uh, Hispanic ladies, who uh, their defense attorney says they're, they're church ladies. They haven't had a parking ticket before. Uh, they're being uh, singled out unfairly. State of Texas says these ladies targeted minority communities, mostly African-American and Hispanic, where they were mostly older, their targets themselves, and many of them had certain kind of handicaps. They were blind. They could not walk. Something got in their way of hopping in the car and going to go vote. So, knock on elderly blind lady's door and say, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm with Dallas or Tarrant County, Texas. Um, I see you're a registered voter, and, and I'd like to help you out. Um, it's what I'm here for. Okay. Can I order this absentee ballot to come to you since you apparently don't have or and especially don't have any use for an iPhone to do this yourself? Um, so let, let's put this application in the mail. And then whenever it comes back, uh, I'll show back up and I'm going to help you vote this ballot and we'll get it back in the mail for you. You'll be all taken care of. That all sounds very nice. And in many, many, many cases, they're doing this for the right reason. You know, they're bleeding heart folks. They just want to help people vote. That's great. Wonderful. But when you start targeting people that can't see the ballot themselves and you're supposedly helping them and then whenever they say, I want to vote for school board candidate A, but you are being paid by school board candidate B to make sure that they get the vote. Then you've got a problem. And this voter fraud ring, what the Texas attorney general calls them, was doing that many times over, uh, over the years. Like this was not recent. This was in the 2016 election. Uh, so what you have, you have ballot harvesting, you have ballot seeding which is knock on the door saying, would you like to register? Would you like to cast a mail ballot in the future? I'll be here to help you. And then you have ballot harvesting, showing up and making sure the dirty deed gets done. Um, and then do that as many times as you possibly can without alerting their next of kin that you weren't actually with the county. You weren't just some nice person helping grandma vote. You were being paid to make sure grandma voted a certain way. And if she was none the wiser to it, bonus money for you. That's happened in Texas. It's happened for years in South Texas. And, and public interest legal would argue that this tactic has really migrated north from the Rio Grande Valley of Texas into uh, North Texas uh, because it's the exact same tactic uh, when it comes to just getting ballots gathered and the communication between the teams um, and defense tactics as well once they get caught. You're seeing this in Texas. Uh, and what's really important is that the state of Texas has decided that they're actually going to put bodies on this problem. They're going to invest in which they've done essentially a voter fraud task force. All they do is handle voter fraud cases. Whereas in the olden days, it was whatever prosecutors uh, docket was looking a little light. Maybe they got a voter fraud file thrown on top of it to disregard, but no, there are guys, paid for by the state of Texas. All they do is investigate voter fraud crimes. And the reason that's valuable is because they're essentially taking all of the understandings that we previously had from a law enforcement standpoint of detecting and deterring and prosecuting fraud 
and saying, you know what, we need to pretend like it's the uh, 21st century because it is. We need to understand how these folks communicate. We need to understand how they organize and activate uh, for bad causes, bust them. And then once we've done that, essentially write the book for other states to follow suit. If you invest this much capital into fighting this, here's how much you're going to find. Here's what you do once uh, you've found the problem. Here's how you prosecute them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's almost as if we're rewinding the tape here and we're talking about the FBI going after this hot new thing called a serial killer. I believe there's a Netflix show about it, but Texas is doing the exact same thing with election fraud and and all the more credit to them. Uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton, this was very much a baby of his. uh, And we really hope to see them take this show on the road and show other states like Florida, where you have a lot of the same dynamics in terms of ballot harvesting. Uh, We can say a prayer that they get entry into into California to do the same thing, but places like Arizona, Florida, uh, and and I would say also uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, those states can take a good look at this and replicate what Texas has done. Wow, that is, that is very revealing, and I guess again that answers why these absentee ballots nowadays, you know, because they're not really the way we traditionally looked at absentee ballots. Uh, they're going to skew towards the Democrats because you know, a even without the fraud, those are the ones doing this; those are the ones organizing it. Um, you yep. don't have much organization on the other side, but you know, I, I would argue that. As much as you could see a less insidious purpose, and it doesn't make sense to me with that states would allow this with so much, uh, you know, so much fraud that could come from it. And we see there's a lot of fraud endemic of it. It really, um, it really, really scares me. And right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was just going to say, behind. yeah, where is this? Um, I, I, I was just going to say, what, what bothers me is this. Um, at the end of the day, voting is not a fundamental right. Owning a gun is. It would shock a lot of people. Um, voting is a, is as close to a fundamental right as you can get. But at the end of the day, it is a po- positive privilege. You know, in the Fourteenth Amendment, the um, the crafter of the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, Jacob Howard, a senator from Michigan, he said very interestingly that the right of suffrage is not in law. One of the privileges or immunities thus secured by the Constitution it is merely the creature of a law. It has always been regarded in this country as the result of positive local law, not regarded as one of those fundamental rights lying at the basis of all society and without which a people cannot exist except as slaves subject to a despotism. And why am I bringing this up? Because, you know, to own a gun, which is, again, that is a negative right. That's unalienable. That's, you know, I need to protect myself. Um, to carry a gun. I live in Maryland. To this day, they regulate the hell out of it to the point where, forget about it, I could fill out all the paperwork I want. I could take a self-defense course, a shooting course. I could show them all this stuff and I'm not that I'm not a bad person. I could go through a six-month process and still they will not issue it to me. That's how much it's regulated. Yet when it comes to voting – which is is one one tranche over. It's it's very it's 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 still at the end of the day a positive right, the most important one of a citizen. But it's not negative. It's not inalienable. It was left to the states. It wasn't taken away from the states, as clearly indicated by the craft of the Fourteenth Amendment. Yet the courts are now saying that it's in the Fourteenth Amendment, or it's in the Voting Rights Act, or it's in a Motor Voter. 
any last thing that what Texas is trying to do, um, go after some of the provisional problems, go after the, the ballot harvesting, photo ID. We have never lost, to my memory, a case in the Supreme Court recently. They've only been good. But yet the lower courts keep coming back for more, and they're putting injunctions on everything. Right. Sorry and, for and that diatribe a, there. I'm just... No, no, it, it's a very important point on, on the battlefield here because you could count on it. If, and Texas is a good example of this, North Carolina, somewhat the same. Um, Texas passes a voter ID law. Justice Department under the old regime before the Shelby County versus Holder decision, which was really one of the first decisions from the court, from the Supreme Court, that when you talk about this winning streak, uh, Shelby County was the first one, which said, you know what? It's not 1965 anymore. Yep. DOJ cannot treat certain states like it's 1965 out there because guess what? More people, black, or you got more black voters in Georgia and Alabama than you do in Boston. Uh, and it looks great. Stuff like that. So Texas passes a voter ID law. Uh, DOJ slaps it down and says, you're a racist state. Uh-uh. We say so. Eventually, Shelby County comes through. Texas in begins to enforce the voter ID law. Here comes the next lawsuit from the Justice Department and local creatures. And they do a great job venue shopping. Uh, They get a judge that they know is going to slap Texas down just like they want him to, and there she goes, she does it. And here we go for a multi-year appellate process to the point that Texas is now out from under the courthouse entirely with a voter ID law. Um, but this is this is what happens uh, is it really has cheapened the value of a trial court opinion. Yep. And we're getting to the point to where the appellate court opinion gets cheapened as well. And everything falls on the Supreme Court to fix because we'll just keep relitigating every single yes. issue. We'll get an injunction on everything. And then when we've done that, we've still lost. Then we're going to do I mentioned Mark Elias uh, before Hillary Clinton's election lawyer. Um then we're going to dispatch Mark Elias and to places like Nevada and say, you know what, uh, Nevada, we don't like the fact that you essentially have a buyer's remorse recall election function where the day after the election, if enough people sign a petition to say, you know what, we shouldn't have elected that bozo. Let's pull him. We know um, he, he's only been in there a day, uh, but we want a new guy. We have enough signatures. Nevada law, that's okay. As long as you got signatures, you get a recall election. Democrats say, you know what? <clears throat> having to vote again is a barrier to voting. Uh, having to vote again is discriminatory. And Mark Elias went to Nevada and tried to get a federal judge under the Voting Rights Act to say that recalls were discriminatory to black voters. And his argument was, look, judge, and remember Cousin Pookie, because here he comes yep. again. It was hard enough to get Cousin Pookie to go show up in November 2016, to have him have to come back in 17 or yep. 18 for some little recount race for some state Senate seat that he probably wasn't even paying attention to when he voted the first time. He's not going to show up. We had to do all this work to get him in on the first time. We can't be expected to, to rely on him, and we, and he can't be relied upon to show up for 
the the second go around. Therefore, Judge, we want you to strike down this recall law under the discriminatory provisions of the Voting Rights Act because that's what it is. So you're going to see all bold new experiments under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, they they picked the lock already. Thinking. They picked our lock. I mean, and this is what bothers me. If you look at the broad theme of everything we're talking about, and, and they say this in court cases and liberal judges do this all the time, whether it's a certain amount of early voting, whether it's a certain type of ballot. Um, we spoke about last time the Michigan judge basically saying that if you don't have a straight ticket voting option in Michigan, that – um, it's going to disproportionately hurt blacks and cause anomalies and long lines in black neighborhoods, insinuating that they're too dumb to discern the candidates more than more so than anyone else. Um, whether it's you know the provisional stuff, whether it's the absentee stuff with ballot harvesting, if you don't harvest the ballots, for them, they can't vote. And I'm trying to to think just just for a minute and photo ID as well. And, and now you know they have same day registration, automatic registration. Help, help me out here. I'm, you know, I'm pretty young. We're, we're probably the same age. I'm in my 30s. I got three kids. I work hard. I don't consider myself privileged. But am I some like either genius or privileged person that has resources that I could freaking register to vote? I could get my butt out there and do. I, I don't. I, 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 I'm not trying to sound like an elitist here. I don't find anything very hard about that. I mean, relative to anything else you do in life that is regulated either privately or publicly if it's a governmental function, and you have to show ID, and you have to follow the rules, this is pretty doggone easy, especially if anything nowadays it's gotten easier um, because of technology both to register to – what what is going on here that they're able to retroactively put this stuff into the Fourteenth Amendment or statute, um, and then and then they they got us and 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 again like you mentioned with uh, Shelby County, we never win Supreme Court cases. That was a big victory at the time. It unleashed the worst number of lawsuits ever, and they're winning in every lower court. They're because they could always have a slightly. Different case, whereas you know you, you talked about the imbalance of activism on the right and the left with election law, election activism, election organizing, but it's also the same thing in the judicial system. If the Supreme Court renders an opinion that's more liberal, conservative lower court justices will never push up against it. You know, test the borders. You know, they they will follow that. Stare decisis. But whenever you get a like a ruling that's I guess more the outcome is more favorable for our side. They'll have a thousand more lawsuits and the lower courts will just. I mean, you saw what happened in Ohio. We won Ohio this term and they they came back with another injunction on the, you know, purging the voter rolls. Absolutely. Yeah. And public interest legal was an amicus in that. I mean, that. yeah, people think that Houston voter roll decision ended with a big win, uh, but they're, they're still trying to resurrect other pieces of the case and then we don't need to dive into it now because it's a little early but here, here's here's the big cultural issue here legal cultural political etc you have a an emerging industry in the law and in the nonprofit sphere that is heavily invested in and it focuses on election law in saying that minority voters of whatever variety minorities living in america are and and there's a key phrase they are quote less sophisticated unquote than white voters and we're about to start throwing asians in that one too if you watch <laughs> but they're less sophisticated 
when it comes to following new election laws and procedures. And I didn't just make that phrase up. I'm quoting the Obama Justice Department expert testifying against North Carolina's voter ID law. You and I paid for that expert to go up there and say, look, Judge, uh, these black folks in North Carolina, they just they're not they don't know how to follow it. They're not like you and I, fellow white guys. We need to help them out, but we can't have this law. It, it's unbelievable. Be- I know. I see it all the time. I, I see it in the judges' opinions. They, they say this stuff. Sure. They, they go to the most liberal circuits and the liberal judges. They could forum shop it. You know, in North Carolina, they always – North Carolina has three federal districts. They always pick um, the most liberal one they can get. And, uh, I, I mean, you know, on this show, we talk about this with immigration all the time, but – in many ways, they have us around the neck because they've codified their political agenda into intertwined it into civil rights and race. And they're basically using the fact that blacks more often vote Democrat to their legal advantage. And, and you know, you see there's they're doing this with redistricting all the time where they're basically saying that unless you have a map that fully allows us to maximize the Democrat vote – because blacks vote Democrat and, you know, they have the right to maximize their advantage. So whereas in the old days, it was, you know, when, when you really had racism against blacks in the South, they would disperse, divide and conquer the um, the black vote. Now the states, they're doing the opposite. They're they're you know, they're putting it in one district, which often even without Republican kind of political gerrymandering geographically that's just how it is you know they're clustered in the urban areas and they sue and say no you have to do disbursement because it will maximize their advantage and if you don't it violates the 14th amendment i mean the supreme court has never said that and they wouldn't say that but the lower courts are being allowed to run amok they are um but the greater issue here and, and a lot of this is timing also there's a reason uh, Trump keeps talking about at good economic indicators for black Americans. And then you have these things called, I think what was it called Blexit. And there's the, the walk away movement, uh, all these little movements that try to go at the heart of the democratic coalition and say, look, you are, there's bigotry being carried out against you. And yet in your name at the same time, uh, you're too stupid to have an ID. So they say, uh, so, yeah, you have these other factors that are coming into play on the political side. Um, all the while, we're gearing up to have a big redistricting fight. And it's important to remember the federal Justice Department has gotten in trouble multiple times for trying to racially gerrymander districts uh, and create majority minority districts out of nothing, essentially. It, the DOJ has had to pay fines. Uh, people have lost their jobs, maybe, uh, but at least the taxpayers have had to pay millions of dollars in sanctions because you had some real whack jobs pushing uh, strange maps from the Justice Department. So it's very important for your listeners to understand that <clears throat> this next election cycle, 2020 cycle, is going to determine, in most cases, who is going to be drawing that map for you next time around. And at the same time, the Commerce Department is fighting tooth and nail to allow the citizenship question to be asked in the, the 2020 census. These two issues are very much merged. 
because you got to have that data to enforce traditional law on the other hand. So we don't need to dive into redistricting today. That's a whole other hour. Uh, I'd be happy to come back for, but (laughs) you've got to start paying attention to that. Now Uh, you need to be paying attention to the people that are going to be drawing your lines. And you, um, I would say if I'm a minority voter, just take a look at who's, how people are talking about me. Because over here, you have people saying, I'm too stupid to follow a voter ID law, uh, or I don't have the proper paperwork. I don't know how to fill out a voter registration form. I don't know how to write my name properly. Um, and therefore, I'm, I'm vulnerable in Georgia. Uh, pick a state, and you're going to find architecture there saying that you are too stupid to vote with the rest of us. And that is very much strategy uh, that is being employed all around the country. Uh, you have a majority bunch of, of white law school graduates with a lot of student debt who will hop into a nonprofit early and push those same <laughs> kinds of legal theories. And they come from a life of privilege themselves. Uh, they can't even see it. And that's why they say such bigoted things, because maybe they've never bl- met a black person before they started it's talking really, about voter wow. ID. It's really disgusting because if you look at everything happening now, not just election law, it always gets back to the racialist agenda. And it's just it's so sad because especially people our age, like who even thinks like this? I mean, who even looks at someone and says, hey, man, I I don't think you even have a could could get a hold of a photo ID. I mean, that's yeah, I don't know what you do in life. Uh, I mean, who who thinks like that? And um, it's just people. Yeah, it's people that place a lot of currency and vulnerability uh, because uh, what else do they have? I mean, they, they, they live in a non-war war torn country. Uh, they can access any kind of information they need from a device sitting in their pocket uh, in seconds. I mean, it, it just, you have a generation and it's not just millennials and whatever the generation that came in after it, but boomers as well, where, it's been a pretty cushy life in the United States on the whole. Uh, And so that's where this victim politics and identity politics comes in and election law fits in that like a glove. Wow. Okay. Well, anyway, I I took way too much time from you. I I, I just enjoy this so much. I know my audience does. So we're going to have to have you back again to discuss redistricting, same day registration, um, automatic registration. It's, you know, your California stuff. We're going to have a part two to this. But I really wanted to thank you for your going over time here with us and um, really updating us because I could tell you, Logan, I'm just watching the conversation live as we're talking. And this is getting very serious in in Florida um, as well as possibly Georgia and some other places. So, you know, at some point, our side is going to have to get smart on this, like you said. Absolutely. All righty. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Logan Churchwell. He has become become a dear friend of this program. He is the Communications and Research Director for the Public Interest Legal Foundation. And uh, let me know. Let me know what I should ask him the next time we have him on, because as you can see, there's like 10 different angles to this. Some of it's cultural and political. Some of it's legal. But they've, like you said, they've created an entire industry in the law and the culture and the body politic around the fact that their voters are more vulnerable, um, that blacks are incompetent, dumb to know how to vote like anyone else. And they've created 10 different paths 
and you're you're seeing everywhere that that you know some of them aren't necessarily inherently that bad, but they do create they're rife with fraud, and they need to be regulated and they need to have oversight. But then the courts prevent that. And you know my whole issue with judicial supremacy, as we're talking on the air, by the way, the Ninth Circuit upheld the ruling of the lower court of the district court saying that Trump must continue DACA. And again, the Supreme Court's going to rule the right way there, but they, they just come back for more. And this is a, a broad problem with the judiciary. Um, we, we didn't even get to Sessions, you know, of all people. He was the one that was uh, fired. None of the liberals, the replacement, how Republicans are learning all the wrong lessons from the election, all the issues we focus on. Jailbreak is heating up. Republicans... Um, are hell-bent on pushing jailbreak. Chris Christie is meeting today with Jared on that because he also wants to be attorney general. That is very dangerous. Um, but, I, but I wanted to just you know do something different today because this is a, this is a problem. We already lost probably five House seats because of this. Um, and they're gunning for the Senate races in Florida and Arizona and the gubernatorial races in Florida and Georgia. Um, I, I don't know what you do here. This is... We cannot let this stand. We cannot let this stand. This is very problematic um, because what they're doing is not right. Uh, you know, this is not just the case of ballot harvesting. I mean, this is really, they're just stealing the election here um, in a lot of these cases. So, anyway, this is, gosh, I have so much more to say, but we're over time here. We're going to have to do another episode. But anyway, thanks for listening. God bless you all. Send me your feedback. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conscience.